Hello, welcome to Thought About Food, a podcast on food and food studies. Each episode, we look at important issues around food, and we talk to academics, activists, policymakers, chefs, or anyone who works on these issues. My name is Ian Werkheiser, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley, and director of the Center for Collaboration and Ethics at UTRGV. In episode one, I said that conversations about food can turn into conversations about anything. That's particularly true in this wide-ranging conversation with Lisa Heltke, author of many books on food, but maybe my favorite is Philosophers at Table. We discuss how looking through the lens of food shows us that everything is always chomping and being chomped on, and that this has some profound implications on our diets, our bodies, and the world around us. We also discuss a lot of other things, including eating food from other cultures, baking, eating at restaurants where you're blindfolded, and many other topics that I'll let you discover. In this talk, I mention a few other guests I've interviewed for this podcast whose episodes haven't yet appeared. But I took this talk out of order because I think it does a good job showing the range of things that can come up when we talk about food and how profoundly different things can look when we use food as a tool for thinking. Let me read you a short bio about Lisa. Lisa Heldke writes and teaches as a pragmatist feminist philosopher. She has been a member of the faculty of Gustavus Adolphus College for more than 30 years. She is also the director of its annual Nobel Conference. She is the author or editor of several books on food, including Exotic Appetites, Ruminations of a Food Adventurer, and, with Ray Boisvert, Philosophers at Table. She's presently involved in a book project with the working title Stuck on You, Thinking Parasitically, and we'll mention uh, some of her work thinking about parasites uh, quite a bit in this interview. An avid bread baker, she's constantly building or rebuilding an outdoor oven, either at her home in Minnesota or her summer yurt on the coast of Maine. Besides bread baking, her other obsession is skijorning and winter camping with her husky, and I'll uh, ask her what skijorning means at the very top of this interview. And now, please enjoy my conversation with Lisa Heldke. What is skijorning? It's uh, your dog pulling you on skis. <laughs> I, I hope, do you have a husky or, I mean, I, or I some do. dog that's it's big enough most, to want to do it? It's the most fun thing in the world, yes. Um, I do it every day in the winter. So, um... You know, I'm trying to make these sort of timeless uh, and interesting conversations that don't have to be super tied down to today, but given what's going on with the pandemic, um, it would be remiss of me not to say, how are you holding up with that? Are you uh, sheltering at home or what's going on? I am sheltering at home. Um, we are, you know, regarded as, as you know, as essential workers, which means we are given permission to go to our office if we need to for our instructional purposes. And because I live in rural Minnesota, um, my internet at home is pretty lousy. And so I tend to come to my office. Um, and there are two other people who ever come into this entire building. And so, you know, I can do that and feel, I, I certainly feel safe. I feel weird. You know, it's like yeah. every day is like when you happen to have to go to your office on Christmas day, you know, it's just, it's really weird to be in this completely empty building. I live, I live alone also with this husky. Um, and yesterday I saw someone's legs for the first time. I've been on a Zoom meeting with her a lot or a Google meeting actually. And I saw her, she came out of her house just to say hello. And it, and it, it actually freaked me out. She has not been, um, she's living in a situation where she's been really, really careful since Friday the 13th. Wow. And she just, 
And so it was just very weird. So I am, you know, I feel like I'm ridiculously lucky. It's very easy. Um, you know, it's very easy to social distance in rural Southern Minnesota. You know, I go to a park to go for a walk with my dog and I see maybe literally yesterday, I think I saw three people during an entire two hour walk. So it's very, very easy. How are you? I'm doing all right. Um, I'm at home with my kids, uh, helping them through elementary homeschooling while also teaching my classes and running wow. the semester, which is hard, but I think doing that on those two ends is making me much more uh, sympathetic. You know, so if my students email me and say they don't understand explanations or instructions that I gave them, I can't be that impatient with them since I don't understand the instructions I'm getting from my kids' teachers. So I think it's, uh, oh. it's helpful in that sense. <laughs> At least it's making me humble. Yeah. I've been trying to connect with people, um, you know, during this, you know, this whole event, but the extent to which it's becoming normalized, I wonder after this is over is, you know, this sort of virtual meeting and conversations like we're having going to become much more common than it was in the past. And will we lose sort of the feeling of necessity of face-to-face -face interaction? Mm -hmm. well, that's a really interesting question. I'm aware of how many fewer interactions I have. Like some days I just want to so I, you know, I teach at this small college where I've, where I've been, you know, for a very long time and where I have kind of layers of understanding of the place and layers of connections that have to do with all the different things I've been involved in. And so when I walk from my office to the cafeteria and it's probably, you know, it's maybe 150 yards, maybe, and it can take me an hour to get there because of all the conversations that I have. And they're oftentimes with people that I wouldn't, you know, I don't even have their cell phone number, right? So that it's not like I, I, you know, we're, we would regard each other as, you know, like best friends or something, but it's just, you know, it's those touchstones in the day. And so I'm really missing that. And I think, well, if most of my life or much more of my life were, I keep thinking of it in terms of being like a prospector in Alaska with the internet, <laughs> you know, yeah. like you're all alone, but you can still reach out to others. I mean, it's, it's lovely, but it's so, um, it's so much not the life of accidentally bumping into people. I mean, how do you accidentally bump into anybody on zoom? Right. Yeah. I was saying to my wife the other day that I wonder when the next time will be that I meet someone I haven't met before. Oh my God. That's really sobering. But to keep me sort of, you know, in a good mood and happy, I've been thinking a lot about food recently, which is why I want to talk to yeah. you. So a ton of your work has done, I mean, it's fantastic. I use it, as I was saying in the intro in my classes. Well, that's very kind of you. Thank you. On philosophy of food. Why do you think philosophy traditionally has had very little to say about food? Mm-hmm. You know, and that's such an interesting question because my thinking about it has evolved so much over the now more than i just laugh when i think about this more than 30 years that i've been doing this work it's just crazy to me um and it and it evolved very much from i really thought that maybe my second book project was going to be a study of the history of philosophy and all the moments when philosophers should have talked about food and didn't and then i realized i am not a historian of philosophy i would never be equipped i would not be in any position to do that work and then as years went on, I thought, boy, I'm glad I didn't try to write that book because I'm not sure it's true. That is, when you really start looking at um, even the history of some of the more conservative Western philosophy, you keep finding food and agriculture everywhere in it. And I know you know, because you were at Michigan State, you know the work of someone like Paul Thompson. And Paul really 
is one of those people who you know made me start thinking about when Locke tells, talks about land and the use of land. Well, that's an agricultural discussion, at least in part. It's not only that, but and I always tell people, well, you know, the first philosopher of food was Plato, because when you actually, like, if you look in the index of that big Plato anthology that people always buy, uh, there's all kinds of references to, you know, how people eat and, you know, the guardians on, when they're on duty should, you know, eat roasted meat because then you don't have to carry a pot along. And I mean, some of it's just trivial things, but, but it's clear that for Plato, it's, you know, the, the fact of eating isn't trivial. I think what I've come to sort of say is, isn't it interesting that we haven't ever gathered those things together into a pot before and called them a thing? Um, and, and to, you know, analogize, this is a kind of a crazy analogy maybe, but um, you may be familiar with this institution that's cropping up in a lot of cities and sometimes counties, uh, something called a food policy council. And it's like a, it's like a, maybe often a citizen's advisory board of a, of a municipality, you know, so it's, it's not elected or anything like that, but it serves in this advisory capacity. And their starting point is to say, if we think about a city or a county through the lens of food, a whole bunch of things get organized and sorted and put together in the same, in the same discussion that normally wouldn't, like bus routes and, you know, children's um, summer reading programs, you know, just all kinds of things where you suddenly say, oh, if we're really thinking about people's safe, affordable, healthy, culturally appropriate access to food, what do we need to do in order to make that really happen? Similarly, coming back to philosophy, I think if we really were saying, we human beings are, you know, homo sapiens, it turns out it means the tasting species. Um, if we start out by thinking we really are, then then maybe we need to organize the history of philosophy with an eye to that. Yeah, it's interesting that, uh, and you've written about this before too, that there's a, what's seen as sort of a traditional or a mainline kind of view in philosophy on what it is to be a person. And when you think about it in that way, certain sorts of questions crop up. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. if you look at us in different ways, maybe different sorts of questions pop up. Yes, yes, absolutely. So, and, you know, I know that, um, Christianity and the Enlightenment are everyone's favorite whipping boy sometimes, but it's not a trivial feature of the history of Western philosophy that bodies and their needs and their nasty tendency to, you know, fall apart and die, um, that all of that has been sort of the thing that philosophers have either regarded as a terrible problem that must be solved somehow or something that's such a terrible problem that we, we must never speak of it again. Uh, right. So I think on the other hand, if you really do start by, as Ray and I do in that book, um, Philosophers at Table, and, you know, I just want to give him so many props for the ways in which he's helped me to think, um, because he is a historian of philosophy and he knows, boy, his education has left him with just so many ways to think into this question. And for him, you know, that we are, we are stomachy creatures who have to eat is not you know, as it was for Plato in the Timaeus, you know, Plato talks about why we have a long intestine, you know, it's so that we don't get bothered during our, you know, during our scholarship. And, you know, I just think, boy, that makes me have to, as a human being, as a, like, like an everyday ordinary person, it, it makes me have to bracket so much of my own way of being in the world, so much of what gives me pleasure, so much of what sustains me literally and metaphorically, 
boy, if I have to constantly be thinking, you know, what I am as a rational animal. Yeah, that's, that's not a move I, I want to make, even though, you know, as someone who was raised in, I was raised a Lutheran, I was raised very much to see bodies and minds as separate and to understand that, you know, I had this, this soul or this mind that was separate from its body and that I, you know, that that was really my essence. And so there's a way in which I think it's fair to say that all of my work is an attempt for me to get over that. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting the ways in which, I mean, you know, I, I've been convinced by quite a number of philosophical arguments that then sort of getting them intuitively or getting them mm. emotionally is then a, another whole step to make after that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I am a big philosophy as therapy um, liver, whether or not I I'm espouse it, I think I really do use, I so often use my writing or my teaching as a way to try to nudge myself one step farther beyond that. Yeah. So speaking of that kind of traditional sort of mind-body dualism or separation between um, us as rational beings and, you know, the unfortunate body that has to carry around our good part, our rational self. Um, <laughs> that, you know, yeah, like, why does it have to carry it if it's disembodied? Exactly. Yeah, we're just we're we're a balloon with an unfortunate sort of uh, child carrying us around. I'm wondering. Um, we seem to not just mention that we're rational animals in philosophy, right? I mean, Aristotle says, for example, mm -hmm. lots of things about us that we like to gather in groups, but so do bees and so do wolves. Um, you know, we have children, but lots of things have children. Uh, we're rational. Right, but it seems that, that that one is taken as not just uh, a, a fact or contingent thing that's true about us, but something constitutive or ethically important. Why do you think that is? Why do we think it's so important that we can make rational choice? Um, so I think um, we focus on that, you know, obviously reason, to, reason gets selected because it somehow is this bright white line that separates us from all other organisms, right? That there's, it's so clear that, that we have it and no other species do. And then, okay, well, maybe, maybe certain higher primates do it. Okay, well, yeah, maybe dolphins. And, the, and then we spend all of our time trying to decide who we're going to let into the club, you know, kind of on, on, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Sort of like on sufferance or something like that. Well, they're, they're sort of like, or they have an asterisk after their name, like, yeah. you know, they can come to some of the meetings, but not all of them or something like that. And when we think about the way in which we define um, the ability to make choices, it's very much, yes, in terms of this notion that we have the capacity to think through different options and then make a choice. And that that's how we actually do make choices, right? And I think that's what's really interesting. I once had a conversation about I don't even remember what it was, what the, what the precipitating event was, but with my dissertation advisor, the most wonderful man in the world, named Arthur Fine, um, and Arthur said, you know, here's what I really think about how we make decisions: we we decide something, oftentimes using mostly our heart, and then later on we come up with this. It's you know, it's the logic of justification rather than the logic of discovery, right? We come afterwards and we say, well, this is what, this is why I did that. This is exactly why I did that. And I think we are really um, attached to the idea that we really are making choices for reasons and that we could write them all down. And I just don't think that most of the time that's what I do. Right. And so then if it's not, if we're making choices and 
epiphenomenally we you know think rationally about them or we justify them or only occasionally is that what's leading to our choice it does sort of suggest that other things can make decisions and i know that um i mean i think most people who think about animals you know as you're saying would say yeah probably some primates probably dolphins or if you are talking to a vegetarian they might say you know did you know that a pig is you know i don't know as smart as your dog or as smart as a two or three-year-old if it's those sorts of arguments um or smarter than stupid three-year-olds you know <laughs> those kinds of things but in in your paper you make sort of an interesting claim that agency and choice goes all the way down you even talk about some research into bacterial <laughs> agency can you talk about that what, what do you yes. mean by bacterial choice yes so um so this is some really interesting research by this uh philosopher of biology from Anne fulda natural agency the case of biological cognition it's a fascinating paper and what he's trying to um, do is say, we, we draw, yeah, as I said, we do draw this bright white line between the kinds of beings that can make choices and the kinds of beings that can't make those choices. And if you're, if you're able to make a choice, then you are responsible for your actions. And if you can't make a choice, then you're not responsible for it. That that's really, you know, that's the, the gold standard. And you're only a moral agent if you can. And now, you know, we might say, well, you know, even if, some animal isn't, we don't regard it as a moral agent. We as moral agents might still decide um, that we need to treat those things as, you know, in the, in the way that we might treat a moral agent, right? So yeah. I choose not to eat them, for instance, or something like that. Right. I've heard it said that they're, they can be thought of as moral patients rather than moral agents. Oh, that's nice. That's a really interesting way to, um, to put it. Um, and so we tend to set that bar really, really, really high and say that only certain agents do it, or we set it a little bit lower so that, um, so that you know, like, yeah, pigs can get in, but chickens and probably salmon can't. Or we say, you know what? Everything can make choices. Everything has agency. Uh, and this philosopher from Anfolda suggests that there's a very real sense in which bacteria are actually engaging in an activity that we can only realistically call making choices. So the, the work is showing that bacteria have this capacity to move themselves toward, you know, sources of nutriment. Well, if that's the case, how do we, how do we understand that? I mean, we certainly work with bacterial agency. I currently have uh, bread rising in my kitchen as I'm talking to you right now. So we know that they do things, but the idea that they are making even very, what you might think of as rudimentary or alien at any rate, not like us kind of choices, but choices problematizes this idea that choice making should be the thing that gets things into the club of counting morally. Mm -hmm. But then the question becomes, well then, all right, if, if the argument before was, you know, look, uh, these sorts of animals think too much like us for it to make sense for us to eat them because the reason why I would treat another human as worthwhile is because they are similar to me in some relevant respects, which as you point out, I think correctly in the paper, isn't the only reason why somebody might be vegetarian, but it's a pretty common one. You hear it a lot when they talk about how smart uh, certain kinds of animals are. If that's the argument, and if it's true that choices and preferences, I mean, choices don't make too much sense without the concept of preferences uh, in, yeah. built into them. Uh, right. If those if those exist, then what can we eat, right? I mean, is is eating just always right. a, ne a necessary evil? Are we always doing harm to some agent and removing their agency? 
Right, right. And that is, you've, you've just uh, landed on one of the things that really, for me, is important about, um, I guess, the, the ramifications of this paper on, um, on bacterial agency, which is part of this larger project I'm engaging in. Um, so I'm working on a book on thinking about, it's primarily thinking about personhood, but um, personhood health, ethical relationships, really ontology of personhood that begins, what if we think seriously about the fact that the most prevalent life form on the planet is parasitism? More organisms spend at least part of their lives as parasites than as anything else out there. And so if that's the case, then all those kind of billiard ball models of human beings just start to not make any sense. There's a philosopher of biology named Scott Gilbert, and he has a, he's, you know, he's got this punchline where he says, we're all lichens, and a lichen you maybe know is this, it's actually this um, symbiotic relationship between three different kinds of organisms. A lichen isn't one thing, although it appears as one thing, and they can't live on their own, right? Uh, well, and Gilbert sort of puts it in terms of symbiosis or, or mutualism, right? That these organisms are like, uh, they support each other. Uh, and he says, you know, with respect to human beings, we are similarly um, lichens in that all these other organisms that inhabit us, you know, primarily our in our digestive tract, those organisms are actually performing these vital human functions, you know, respiration, digestion, all that sort of stuff. I eat a bagel, there's nobody going to my body's not going to get any good out of that if if I do not have a very, very healthy intestinal tract filled with organisms that are going to happily, you know, eat and excrete and do all the stuff that's going to, you know, make that nutrient bioavailable to me. Yeah, I think most of us are familiar with that after, you know, taking a round of antibiotics and then trying to have a full meal. Yes, exactly. And now also a lot of us are um, familiar with it for, you know, there's, there is a real run on parasitism and, and, you know, thinking about, you know, healthy gut bacteria and all that kind of stuff these days. And I'm, you know, I'm tickled about it. Sometimes I think I'm just cashing in on, on the, the popular conversation right now. But if we really take that seriously, my deal is, why are we seeing this and thinking about this and understanding it entirely in terms of the relationships that enable us to flourish and thrive? Because it turns out that we are not just collections of um, mutualistic or um, uh, what's the word I want for uh, when we're not really harming each other. Symbiotic. Uh, well, symbiotic is kind of, well, there's an interesting issue. It turns out that the term symbiotic has moved from being primarily a term to talk about what are now called mutualistic relationships to being the umbrella term that captures all of these kinds of relationships that I think of as being these ongoing long-term connections with each other. So I'm interested in all those ongoing long-term connections with each other relationships. We tend, you know, someone like Scott Gilbert says, let's think of ourselves in, in mutualist terms. And I want to say, no, let's not. Let's think of ourselves. Let's think of the, the um, umbrella category, not as symbiosis, but as parasitism. And let's understand these other relationships in terms of that, because it turns out there are not sharp divisions between and among these. And in fact, relationships over time in the life of, a, of an organism, but also over uh, evolutionary time in the life of you know, a species, they move or, or across, across boundaries, they move from being parasitic to mutualistic to being, you know, neutral. All of these are happening in human beings all the time. So who we are, 
we are clubs. We are clubs. And like clubs, you know, some of our members are dissenting and others of our members are trying to get the agenda put forward and so on. And all of that is happening all the time. And what we humans do more than anything else really is die, right? Like I, I just, as I've been working on this project, I've been thinking about, you know, back to, you know, the history of philosophy, you know, the, the period of Western philosophy that's sort of most vivid for me and that seems like I, I carry around in my head the most in terms of cartoon ways of looking at the world is the modern era and these kinds of, you know, billiard ball humans who are supposed to be independent. We just happen to be born very vulnerable and dependent and we just happen to usually die very vulnerable and dependent and to have periods of, you know, enormous dependency in between and then a, you know, pretty much constant but invisible to us much of the time dependency all the time, right? That's who we are as humans, and yet we have this notion, I do, of being a billiard ball who just happens sometimes to bump into other people. Uh, and once you take seriously this, you know, this, I think of it as, you know, a tube, you know, people say we're donuts or we're tubes, like, right, the entire external world is coursing through me all the time. And that's the only way that I live, but it's also the only way that I die, right? Like the only thing we human beings definitely and reliably do is die. But our conception of human personhood doesn't include that at all. It doesn't include the notion, well, I mean, not never, but you know what I mean. Um, our conception of human is of healthy human. And so this larger project from which the paper about, you know, agency and choice and so on is, is coming is really this project to think about what does it mean really to take very, very seriously the fact that we are bags of organisms. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and vulnerable ones at that. I mean, to, very vulnerable. To the extent that philosophy has, uh, or certain branches of philosophy have either ignored death or seen it as an inconvenience or looked on it as like some sort of unaccountable horror, all, mm -hmm. all of them are, are a, a strange sort of rejection of ourselves as uh, animals, you know? Yes, yes. And, uh, and um, I mean, I'm really, I've been thinking a lot about the, the fluidity of these categories uh, or of, of, no, not the fluidity of categories, because the categories are kind of, kind of rigid. And when I say that, I understand that biologists don't treat them rigidly, but I think we who imbibe biology as amateurs do, right? Like we think, well, there's parasites and they're bad. First, right. the one organism, and then there's um, and then there's parasitoids, which are really bad because they're the ones that like kill the thing they're living on. And then there's the mutualists, or if you prefer the symbionts, who are like, yeah, we're, we're in it together. And then there's the ones where it's one is good and one is bad and so on. We have all these categories and we think, well, and then there's an organism that's in that category. And then there's an organism that's in that category. And then you find out, you know, so there's this wonderful book called uh, The Mushroom at the End of the Universe, um, Living Life in Capitalist Ruins by an anthropologist named Anat Singh. God, if I could have written any book in the world, that would be the book I would have written. Just a beautiful book. And she's talking about these mushrooms that grew, grow in destroyed forests. Um, and they grow in Oregon. But one of the things that's happening in these forests in Oregon is that there's this little nematode that infests them, and it, and it kind of irritates these pine forests. But, you know, they, they manage to survive anyway. Um, what's destroying the pine forests in Oregon is, of course, clear-cutting. Yeah. Um, then she goes, flashes over to Japan, and in Japan, same species of pine tree, same nematodes, deadly. The Japanese pine tree is unable to withstand the onslaught of these nematodes and entire forests die because of them. 
same exact, you know, quote unquote, same exact organisms. And so for me, it just feels like, okay, let's just acknowledge that that isn't an exception. That's not weird. That's ordinary every day. So why and how can we create an ontology of personhood that's really willing to live with that? And that's willing to say that, yeah, the, the things that are eating on me now are going to someday kill other people in a different place. And of course, yes, I am deeply and excruciatingly aware of the fact that we are having this conversation in the middle of um, a global pandemic due to the result of a novel virus for which there is no vaccine and there is no cure. I mean, I have occasionally had that kind of Homer Simpson, don't, you know, kind of feeling like, why couldn't I have written this book sooner because I don't want to have to think about this. Uh, and I really, I've been struggling mightily to try to, you know, I'm trying to have this really rigid writing practice. And I'll tell you, it has gone all to pot right now because I'm terrified to sit down at my computer because I feel like, you know, the world is taunting me and saying, oh, yeah, yeah, you think this, you know, we just got to live with it and go with the flow. You're all about that until, you know, the global pandemic happens in your lifetime. And then suddenly you're all like, wait. Um, and yeah, I am sort of like that. And I'm realizing that yeah, this is where this particular chicken comes home to roost and you got to just suck it up, buttercup, and realize how many metaphors can I, or how many uh, cliches can I <laughs> offer into that sentence? This is reality. This is this is just, you know, and uh, so there's this philosopher named Michel Serre who has a book called The Parasite, which I draw from very heavily. And Serre says, this is not a moral claim, right? I'm not saying it's really good or really bad. This is just the way things are. Now, how do we go about our business and what is our business in the face of that? Yeah. I mean, I was speaking um, to Ann Portman the other day, actually, too, about uh, oh. Val Plumwood's work and her saying the, um, well, it's certainly not, uh, I don't know what the right, I don't know if good is the right word. Well, you know, you wouldn't want it to happen to you. Being a prey or seeing ourselves as prey for humans is sort of a salutary experience. And she said that after herself being preyed upon by a saltwater crocodile. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Val Plumwood has this really interesting paper where she talks about her attack and how she barely survived and also how, you know, it gave her kind of a different and actually better relationship to thinking about human triumphalism or humans as being a disembodied sort of uh, reasoning being. You know, <laughs> a lot of that goes out the window when you're fighting in the water with a crocodile. Yep. Yeah, yep. I say it's yep. desirable. But a yep. phrase that you have um, to sort of think about this different ontology, which mm -hmm. has stuck with me, I think about it a lot, um, from, I think I first heard this when you were speaking at a conference that I had organized, oh, right. is about um, how we are always chomping and being chomped on. Can you talk a little bit about that as yeah. a different sort of view? Yeah, no, that was a really, I, I, I think about that conference often, actually, because um, I'm pretty sure that's the first time I said that. And you had given me this, you know, carte blanche to like go around and listen to people's talks. And then at the end of the day, talk about them, which was terrifying and really fun. I enjoyed it enormously. And it was in the midst of all of that thinking that I was doing as I heard all these great papers that I, I you know, I said, yeah, it's, it's chomping all the way down. I mean, that, that we are really chomping and being chomped upon all the time. And in this, I mean, what's, What's interesting to think about that's different from predator-prey relationships is the ongoingness of the parasite or of the symbiont, right? That this is not chomp, done, end of the story. This is like always going on. Um, 
And so this kind of instability of what it is to be a human. And as you say, you take an antibiotic and suddenly it's not, everything is broken inside of you. <laughs> if we really acknowledge that that imbalance is the way the world is, we stop trying to put the brakes on. Yeah, I, I have to go and look at that Val Plumwood essay because I think it will, will help me to think about how do we talk about this? How do we, how do we talk in more reasonable ways about what it is to be a, an organism that is just always falling apart and being reassembled until it isn't. <laughs> right. And there's, I, I don't know, if maybe I'll see if I can think of it during this conversation and then say the name, but there was an author uh, who wondered in a paper whether she had some sort of duties toward the internal uh, gut flora and fauna that she had. Oh, uh, yes. Uh, you know, like when she was moving to a new place and eating new kinds of food in her new location, like she relocated because of work for as an academic and was eating very different food. Now, I think she moved to Oregon from the Midwest, maybe. And she was wondering, like, what sort of, you know, like I'm rewarding certain sorts of living organisms inside of me and transplanting other ones and then, you know, driving them to extinction. And she wondered to what extent she should think about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. And what I like about that is it that it kind of, it, it invites new ethical questions, right? Um, I mean, like I think, and I know that you probably experienced this too, given how much you, you do about philosophy of food, that a lot of times um, when people know that you think about philosophy of food, they think, oh, that's about famine or do you eat animals, right? And, right. and I know that you, you, like I, have lots of misgivings about the reductionism of the way that people think about why we should or shouldn't eat animals. And um and to say, what other kinds of res ethical responsibilities do I have when I start thinking that other animals are eating on me is a really interesting thing. And also, if we realize that we are chomping and being chomped, and once everything has agency and is making choices, that can't be the reason that we decide, eat this, don't eat that, right? We can't say, oh, they have a big enough brain. You know, right? I've always been, I mean, there's certainly something to that, right? Like, while I would be very happy to have someone eat me if it were safe for them to do so, you know, after I was dead, I, yeah, I don't fancy cutting up another human body. I think that would be really a challenge for me. Um, I, I, I tend not to eat, I very occasionally eat meat and I sort of don't think very hard when I'm doing it. And I don't, I don't necessarily, I'm not, I don't know anymore what I am actually eating about, about animals, but I do know that for me, it doesn't work simply to say, has a big brain, can make choices, won't eat. And those other things um, don't matter because, you know, as I say, the, this capacity to make choices might well go all the way down. And if so, we can't not eat anything, right? We can't eat only salt. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's, um, some some of my students when I'm teaching philosophy of food will ask me, well, you know, then what do I what do I personally think is the right thing to do in terms of eating or you know like basically they want to put me in a box which I try not to do when I'm teaching you know I don't want them to know my personal opinions so I'm trying to represent all of the different sorts of ways of thinking about it but what yeah. I usually tell them is which is true is I have much more in common with anyone who thinks that the question of food and eating and what it means to be that dependent on constantly bringing food into our mouths or we die. And that, uh, that fact, which is shared with all other humans and indeed all other living things, that that's complicated. <laughs> I have more in common with that person. Whatever their conclusions, their tentative conclusions are so far, as long as they think it's complicated, than I do with anyone who thinks, actually, this is a very easy question. Here's the simple rule. Whatever the yep. simple rule is, I 
I am not on that person's team. Even if their rule happens to coincide with mine, I'm much more in line with somebody who thinks anything that they say is, is only part, part of a complicated conversation. Yep. Yep. I'm entirely with you, Ian. Um, I, in fact, just the other night I was on the phone with a former student who's a friend of mine now, and he was saying uh, something like, well, you know, I'm thinking maybe I should become a vegetarian. And I found myself trying to talk him out of it because, you know, first of all, I know that he doesn't actually cook things and he struggles to, to not be skinny and he's got to eat a lot of protein and, you know, all those things where, where somebody might, might, might really struggle with this. But also I could, he I could hear him kind of homing in on that because if I did, then I would have clean hands right. and I just, you know, and so I hauled out Derrida's, you know, observation about how, you know, even vegetarians are, you know, consuming animals. And I don't, I don't want to look away from that, right? I don't want to stop remembering that I am consuming others always. Yeah, I think that people who want to say, well, I don't eat any animals at all. Um, you know, like my, my, my eating habits don't cause any harm, um, yeah. are almost certainly, almost certainly incorrect, um, unless they just eat salt, as you pointed out, although even then I wonder where did that salt come from, right? Right. But, um, they, so, they harvest their own tears. Yes, exactly. So yeah, that person seems like they're incorrect. But the person who says, oh, well, it turns out I can't be perfect. And so then if I can't be perfect, all non-perfect behaviors are equivalent to one another. Right. Um, you know, that, it's a very, I feel like it's a very American way to look at things, but it's, right. it, it doesn't seem super productive. Right. It's, it's extremely unproductive and we wouldn't regard, we wouldn't, um, we wouldn't accept that behavior in a lot of other situations, right? Like, and I can't think of why I've come up with the example of buying a car, but you think, well, I can't get the safest and best and um, coolest looking car because it costs a million dollars. So I might as well just get any other car, <laughs> right? No, you say, well, what are the ways that I could, you know, ensure my safety or what are the ways what are some of the what are some of the things that I really do want to preserve, or what are some of the things that I really want to do do want to promote, or that I that I want to place value on? Right. Um, so another thing that you've written about um, elsewhere, maybe you can speak to this. <laughs> I mean, I can often not remember articles that I wrote a year oh. ago, but uh, is something I've I've used before in my classes. So a different question that people ask about, you know, what can I eat from an ethical sort of concerned oh. phrase, isn't about animals, but is about eating food from other cultures. Yeah, and, yeah. And you've, you've written some interesting things about this quest for authenticity, about wanting authentic ethnic food, whatever that means, and, yeah. uh, and maybe some problems with it. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, absolutely. And, and so, you know, that work is a, a little bit old now, but I still really think that it has things to say in the, in the present moment. And um, so I, I, it's, from a book called Exotic Appetites, uh, Ruminations of a Food Adventurer. And in it, I was, I started really thinking about that book not very long after I got out of graduate school. And in graduate school, I lived in, you know, Evanston, Illinois, very close to Chicago. And I would eat, you know, quote, cheap ethnic food all the time, right? It was where I first had Thai food. I can still remember the place. I remember the flavors. I remember what we ordered. It was like this transcendent experience. And then I started, um, I started noticing this kind of avaricious way that I was gathering up ethnic cuisines, kind of like, you know, playing cards. And you'd go to a philosophy conference and people would be, you know, 
oh, did you go to that Burmese restaurant? And it, it was this kind of weird competition and people would sort of slap down their cred, like, where have you been? What kind of weird food have you? And, and often, you know, again, these more inexpensive um, ethnic foods, and then you'd start kind of one-upping each other about, well, you know, that restaurant, you know, like I didn't see any, any, there weren't any locals in there. And I didn't see any, you know, it didn't seem very authentic to me. I mean, did you see the pictures on the menu and people, um, decide what authentic means and you know now that there's i wrote this book thank you jesus before there was a food network <laughs> because wow there's a lot out there to talk about now i mean it would have taken me even longer than the seven thousand years it did take me to write that book but so um i started paying attention to this and it was very much philosophy as therapy for me like i really wanted to i it was early in the days of me thinking very much about my own uh, racism and my own ethnocentrism. And I was really, for whatever reasons, the, the route I took to think about that very consciously was, was through food and the ways in which I ate the food of the colonized other. And you know, it wasn't lost on me that many of the foods that cropped up in you know, urban centers in the United States were the foods of those who had been routed out of their own countries by war or poverty or you know, some form of uh, colonialist disruption. Um, and so I started trying to analyze what was going on. And I, you know, I, I watched, you know, I read, you know, eat, I call them eat and tell memoirs. Um, I read newspaper. Again, this was largely before the days of very much stuff going on on the internet. And so it was a much easier book to write then. Um, but I was just gathering up the ways in which Euro-Americans talked about the food of colonized others. And it, it sorted out into a few categories for me. Um, uh, the other as being a kind of a resource for my use and that um, this continual quest for the exotic. So I'm always looking for that thing that is the coolest thing out there that none of my friends have had. And that thing turns out to be the thing that since I've never encountered it before, it must be the thing that makes that thing really the thing, right? So whatever is the most unusual to me, what I term the exotic, comes to be for me the thing that makes that cuisine authentically itself. Now, mind you, I'm the completely ignorant outsider, but I am the authority because I'm somehow dispassionate because, you know, I'm a white person. Uh, and so I can make judgments about what counts as authenticity in a in a colonized culture about which I know almost nothing because I am somehow neutral. So whatever is exotic to me turns out to be authentic to me. And whatever is authentic to me is what I really want to home in on because I want to adorn my own life and become more interesting. And so these exotic, authentic others become um, a resource that I can use to make myself more full, real, authentic, whatever. Yeah, the, uh, this, the whole thing of authenticity is very interesting to me. I used to teach English as a second language. Oh, right. Yeah, and I was trying to explain the concept of authentic to uh, my students. And, you know, was where was this? Uh, it was, this is in America, but it's just students from all over the world. Oh. And one of my students from Taiwan uh, thought she understood because she'd heard the word before um, and had had an interaction with it. So an American exchange student had lived with her for a while and had asked to eat somewhere very authentic. 
And she hadn't known what that word meant at all at the time. And so she asked and her, you know, her um, friend said, uh, well, you know, someplace where you and your friends like to go, where tourists don't want to go. Mm -hmm. And she said, oh, okay, great. And took her to an olive garden <laughs> because the olive garden had just opened. <laughs> and yes. So, and all her friends loved to go there and tourists never seemed to want to go there. Right. And, <laughs> And her friend was really mad and said, no, I wanted to go, you know, like to the night market. And she said, oh, but tourists are always going to the night market. What do you mean? <laughs> the first place I ate in Accra, Ghana was um, Kentucky Fried Chicken because the young woman that was hosting me really loved the place and wanted to go there. Yeah. When we talk about our own culture's authenticity, it seems very different than when we talk about other cultures' authenticity. Right, right. And one of the things that I do in that book is explore, you know, so I'm... I, my, by the way, my prescription in that book is not stay home to eat, right? There are 7 million ways that that's the exactly wrong attitude, but rather I suggest that we cultivate an attitude of, you know, self-questioning um, and kind of interrogation that, that, you know, maybe I need to think about what exactly I, it is that I'm, I'm searching here or I'm, I'm searching out here. And if it's, you know, making myself more interesting what are some other ways that i might interact with and engage with this culture but with respect to the matter of how might we um rehabilitate or rethink um notions of authenticity one of the cookbooks that i read and really loved during that time um because it seemed to me to to illustrate another notion of authenticity was a cookbook of thai food a friend had brought back from thailand so it was a cookbook for Thai people who are trying to cook somewhere else in the world. Um, and among the things that they recommended were um, Pillsbury biscuits and ketchup, because these were ingredients that did the job, right? And so rather than you spending all of your time, you know, schlepping all over your major metropolitan center to find the thing that you know that a Thai person in Thailand would use, you say, I'm going to use this thing because, for instance, maybe a Thai person isn't all hung up on that ingredient being exactly the flavor that one must have, but rather is like, you know what, this is street food. So the idea that you would spend an enormous amount of time, energy, and effort running all over Huckins to get that thing would exactly violate the, the authenticity of this dish in another way. So I really, I think it's an interesting notion. And, you know, we, we see it talked about in you know, since I wrote that book, there's a lot of discussion in the food studies literature about it, of course. Yeah, um, there's, I mean, ketchup and pad thai is really common. There's a really good, yeah. there's a really good popular book for listeners who want to think more about this that I read not that long ago called um, The Fortune Cookie Chronicles by Jennifer A. Lee. And oh. she, she's Chinese American. And she, part of the book is about um, what Chinese food looks like in different cultural contexts. So what does Chinese food cooked by people from China who moved to Brazil look like in Brazil versus Chinese food from people in the same town in China who moved to France or moved to America yes. and how they had to learn how to cook quote unquote Chinese food after they arrived because they only knew how to cook no quotes Chinese food. And so, and it, so it was a different, um, and, you know, part of it is availability of ingredients, but part of it is just the how much do people like sweet? How much do people like salty or sour? You know, those sorts of mm -hmm. considerations. And then yep. her, other, her other sort of larger question is what does it mean to be Chinese? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, how in some cultures that's merely, uh, you know, were you born there? Do you speak the language? Do you understand the culture? For other contexts, sometimes it means, you know, are you racially or, you know, in your blood? Does it seem like you're from that place or do you, you know, 
sort of phenotypically look like you're from there. And mm -hmm. her, her conclusion is that uh, in China, it's all of them at once. So it's like one of the highest standards that she encountered compared to other countries, coming wow. from New York in particular. But yeah, it's, it's a good book to sort of look at these questions. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I've seen the book and have never read it. Thanks for that recommendation. It's, way, it's well worth it. But you know, so part of this, that, that argument that you've made about um, authenticity or exoticism, um, you know, these sorts of things that we're looking for when we're trying to eat food that isn't mere flavor, right? Mm -hmm. That when you say that, that a food is good, not, well, actually, I, I was going to say not morally, but I, I won't say that. When we say that something is good to eat, um, you've written um, in one of your books about that being something like a consummatory experience. Can you talk a little bit about this idea of food? Like, what is it to eat food as a consummatory experience? Mm -hmm. So Dewey, in his book, Art as Experience, uh, talks about um, art as being both instrumental and consummatory. And so instrumental meaning that it enables us to get to something else, but also art is consummatory. That is, we appreciate, and this sounds, you know, like Plato, really, we appreciate it for itself so that we don't need some well, what's it for? You know, like you look at the painting on the wall. Well, what's it for? No, it's it's for what it is. It's for our aesthetic appreciation of it. Um, and so our attitude toward that is sort of um, like why why reduce the aesthetic to art? Why why confine food in that particular way? Um, is is one way to think about it. So certainly. Um, the experience of eating is multi-sensory um, in a way that basically nothing else is. You know, I've had these conversations with uh, a geologist friend who says, well, you know, we do sometimes lick rocks in the field, right? Well, yes, you do, but that is not the same as sitting down and eating a meal, right? That, that is that, that the experience of exploring our world through dining, through eating, through chowing down, through through grabbing a snack, whatever, whatever the form in which we are ingesting food is so, it is at least potentially so multidimensional that, you know, it's really, it, it's without, I want to say it's without parallel. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, if you think about not just the actual literal flavor that you would taste in a blind taste test, but, and obviously then we know, well, okay, you eat with, but you smell things, you know, if you plug your nose, the food doesn't taste as good and we eat with our eyes, but it's even more than that. Who are you sitting with? Yes. How much money did you spend on this food? What sort of narrative did the waiter give as he was bringing it to you? You know, a, yes. a host of elements that we don't necessarily yes. think of, but, yes. or we think that they're by the way, rather than actually yes. part of the taste, part of the experience that we're having. Yes, absolutely. Um, and one of the thinkers that has been so influential on me first going down that road is uh, Carolyn Korsmeyer and her wonderful book with the beautiful title, Making Sense of Taste. Um, and she really brings home the fact that oftentimes in talking about taste, you know, as one of the proximal senses and therefore a lower sense, because it reminds us of our embodiment, um, people will say, well, you know, um, all these other, as you say, all these other factors are extraneous. So the fact that you know, smell or taste is both taste and smell is somehow like a problem with it. <laughs> you know, well, no, that's what it is. That's how it works. Um, or that, you know, you don't hear the right crunch when you eat a potato chip and you just, you're, 
that's a part of your disappointment, right? Or you listen to somebody else eating a potato chip and you think, oh, I'm going to pass on those because they're clearly not crunchy anymore. Um, you are, my sister and I, I, we were in, my, my sister and I were in Amsterdam over Christmas and which by the way, uh, let me just say, that is the first and only time that that sort of sentence would ever come out of my mouth. Don't, <laughs> lest the reader think I'm in the habit of going abroad for Christmas, it happens that this Christmas, my sister and I were in Amsterdam, and I said I really wanted to do some, at some point, she's not much of an eater, but I said at some point while we're here, I really want to do some interesting meal, and you know, what, what, what could that be? It could have been a lot of things, but I fell upon this restaurant in the dark. And we went and had the most amazing experience. So it's a it's a literally pitch black dark restaurant. Uh, the servers are blind people, and it was a fascinating, fascinating experience. As you tried desperately to figure out what, and you could choose. So we chose vegetarian. So the goal wasn't to like you know gross you out with weird things or anything like that. It was really to just invite you to be present to this food, and it was just blindingly difficult to figure out what the heck was in my mouth at any moment. And, and when they would finally tell you what something was, you would think, oh my God, how could I have not gotten there? But it's because food is this entire sensory experience. I'm sure you've read the, the little um, anecdotes about people being um, put in studies where they're handed a piece of chocolate. They know that it's chocolate. They, they can smell that it's chocolate, but it is in the shape of feces. And they're like, can't do it cannot do it. Yeah, and the 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 sort of implication in that in those studies, I, I don't know about the scientists, but in the way that that's presented often is oh look how dumb and irrational people are being. Right. But I don't know if that's right. No. I, just think, yeah, I don't enjoy this entire experience. Well, all right, fair enough. Right, exactly. No, absolutely. And so yeah, so coming back around to consummatory experience, think about how many levels and layers. And I'm not saying like everything Every time we eat, it should be, or we should strive for that. I mean, that would be a ridiculous standard, right? But we also don't think, you know, when you're doodling on a Zoom call, <laughs> that that's, you know, a work of great artistic genius, right? That we understand that we use these um, modes of interacting with our world in all kinds of ways, sometimes, um, sometimes a very highfalutin way and sometimes a very ordinary way. And and that food has this much capacity is an amazing, or that eating has this much capacity is an amazing thing about it. And at any given moment, we may or may not, you know, go to the full consummatory. And I think one of the other things, I'm pretty sure Ray and I talk about this, is it doesn't need to mean that it's good, right? Like this, ours is not a book about um, high cuisine and that being the the real deal, right? It can be about an aesthetic experience that is consummatory simply because of the intensity of your attention and your focus. Uh, you know, peanut butter and crackers eaten when you've hit the summit, right? Like, I don't know what your take along food is, but for me, it's often peanut butter crackers, something that I never eat at home ordinarily. And they are, they are so exquisite. And and do I want to say, oh, they're not really, you know, like, what in the world do I mean by that? What in the world could I possibly mean by no, they're not really? The experience, the consummatory experience of eating those crackers when you're looking out over, you know, fill in the blank with the name of the majestic peak, that is, a, that is the whole 
deal and take one strand of that away and it's no longer that deal. Yeah. And I think that, you know, bringing it back to that question about ethical eating, there's something to be said there too. Like, um, you know, people will often try to push me and they'll say, well, what if you had chickens that you raised in your backyard and you treated in the best possible, most chickeny way, you know, in mm-hmm. terms of welfare, but also mm-hmm. in terms of them doing the teleological, most chickeny stuff that they ever get to do in their lives. They have the best chickeny sorts of lives. And then at the end, when they're, you know, old, then you kill them and eat them. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's part of this like long relationship. Wouldn't that be ethically okay? And the answer is, yeah, I think it would be, but I probably wouldn't want to eat that chicken. Not because I think that's evil or even less bad than, you know, some industrially farmed, uh, you know, wheat, for example, um, probably a lot more suffering went into that wheat generation than this chicken I kept in my backyard. But the feeling of that chicken, thinking about that chicken would make it for me an experience I don't want to have, mm-hmm. which, is why, which is why I think, at least for me, a lot of the ethics of eating has to take into account the aesthetics, not yeah. in the pejorative sense that that's usually used by non-philosophers, but like truly thinking right. about what it is like to experience something. Right, right. And I, I, I hear you. And I think um, it's interesting to me where I come down on these issues and I'm, I'm reassociating several thoughts. So one summer I was, um, there was a guy down the road from me was raising some pigs and those pigs were having a very gay old time. Like I would ride by on my bicycle and they would chase alongside of me and they were very curious and so on. And it was clear to me they were having a good life. And I thought to myself at the time, you know, maybe I could eat those pigs because it's clear to me that they're having a good life. Uh, you know, could I, and, and so I'm not, that's not the same as raising them themselves. And so then now I'm thinking, could I ever eat my husky? Could I kill and eat my husky at the end of his life? And I don't know anymore. I mean, I, I know that there was a time when I absolutely would have said, absolutely not. I can't eat any animals. And and I feel less like that now, and I'm not quite sure why, although I think, you know, circling back to this whole parasite thing, it's that I'm so acutely aware of the fact that I can't not have things be dead in order for me to be alive. And so I'm really, I'm really, I'm in the soup on that one and and would be, in any given context, would would probably make a different choice. Sure. And, and- in another context. Yeah, and I think, I mean, it, certainly the the desire to not want to be implicated in things, deaths, uh, kind of like, possibly, I mean, I've been reading articles that, you know, maybe we're going to be just a much more germaphobic culture moving forward, which might have some salutary benefits. Maybe people won't get diseases. That would be good. Mm-hmm. But there, there's a degree to which being afraid or, or wanting to be clean, right, whether it's mm-hmm. ethically clean or physically clean, just keeping all the bad stuff sequestered away from me is sort of a, it's an, it's an anti-life stance, right? It's an, it's an mm-hmm. abiotic kind of stance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm very, um, I'm, I'm nervous about that word clean, which has, I don't know if you've noticed it getting used to describe like clean food. I'm, I, that phrase really, um, yes, it's sobering. And, and I have to say a little bit frightening to me. And it, it seems to have Kind of implications that it can't help but resonate um, racially for me. Oh, absolutely, and it's it's a great, great. Not in the, I, as an aside, I often tell my students that when I say something's interesting or cool, right. I don't mean good. <laughs> I often mean right. de- I often mean depressing, but you know, like good to think about. Um, right. It's a very interesting concept or word because. 
it does a few things at once. For one thing, it isn't policed. So unlike organic, which has a lot right. of legal heft behind it in the United States, and even local, which is not very well defined, but you know, no one's going to think that imported tomatoes from Chile are local. They're, you know, that's clearly nonsense. Clean is it's a new word, right? It's a, it's a it's a it's an unspoiled territory for advertisers and manufacturers to label their things as clean. And there's no you know there's no clean police who're going to come check that. Yep. And also, yeah, as you're saying, it trips a lot of really kind of um, negative uh, associations that we have in our culture of wanting to be clean and keeping dirty things away from us. Um, someone else I've actually interviewed for this series uh, has done work on the ethics of eating invasive species. Oh. And he's talked about how a lot of the dialogue around invasive species, if you like read the, oh. read the ads, are very, like they read like Nazi literature oh, from the my 1930s. God. Yes. And there's a theory yes. that if it's invasive, then we have no moral duty to it, right? Like maybe we have right. some moral duty towards animals, but not if they're invasive. Then you Oh, we do have a moral duty. Want. We need to wrench it from the ground and yeah. destroy it. And yeah. burning is the only way to do it. And the interesting thing is that invasive is usually only, it isn't applied to all things that aren't native. It's implied often, he's, he's pointed out through, you know, looking at the literature, to things that ha aren't native, obviously, and have an economic impact. On economic interests yeah. so uh, you know if dandelions don't count because who cares about dandelions particularly unless you have a yard in which case all of a sudden they do count but you know if there's a small bug in california that's hurting grapes yep then which by the way themselves yep. aren't native and are taking over a huge section of northern california grapes plus humans equals invasive species invasive symbiosis yep. right but uh that that bug is an invasive species when we have to eradicate it it's coming yep. up from Mexico. It's this dirty Mexican bug. We have to destroy it. It's, it's very creepy. Yep. creepy I, guess. I had a, a student last semester who, or last year, I guess it was, who was doing a double major in environmental studies and philosophy, and he's an avid fisherman. And he did his on, uh, yeah, where do we draw those boundary lines? And he was, re and the notion of introduced species. And in Wisconsin, the brown trout is a much, much, much beloved uh, sport fish to be, you know, to be caught. And it is, of course, introduced, but trout fishermen who will, you know, sing the praises of native ecosystems till they're, you know, blue in the face would never want to get rid of the brown trout because it's just so darn fun to catch. Right. So yeah, we, we, um, we draw those lines in very interesting ways. Right. But zebra mussels interfere with uh, shipping on the lakes and the canals from yeah. New York yeah. into Minnesota. So they're a problem. Yeah, However, I would say, people hear me say nothing good about the Asian lady beetle as someone who lives. <laughs> well, they I, bite, I, I they said, pinch. I don't like them. I said on Facebook the other day, I don't live alone. I live with Asian lady beetles, ants, and a husky. Yeah, and uh, only some of them are welcome. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and in some days, none of them are. Right, but I would, so I would say, uh, listen to um, the interview that I do with Joey Tuminello, just to get his name out oh! there. Um, that he's, he's the guy that's written about that. Yes, of course he is. Yeah, he's great. In fact, it just it only came up. Um, the reason I had him on was to talk about his distinction or his work on the distinction between food and drugs, which is another sort of bright line that people try to make that isn't actually oh. justified once you ask any question, any follow-up questions about it. Mm-hmm. So interesting. Um, one thing I've been asking everyone to do is uh, to submit a recipe of some kind of food oh. that's meaningful to them. And you've decided to submit bread, and I love baking. I uh, I learned how to bake while I was getting my PhD. I learned how to break, uh, how to bake and brew beer because I wanted to make sure I learned something while I was in my doctoral program. <laughs> so you know, just to kind of hedge my bets on whether or not I would learn anything academically, I learned both of those. So uh, can you talk about um, what baking means to you when you started baking and 
So yeah. think about it. Yeah, and let me just say that it actually connects up again with uh, the whole notion of you know chomping all the way down. And I I realized that so I'm a I'm a decent cook. I'm a I think I'm a good baker, but I'm I'm more than being a so like I'm a philosopher of food. I do food studies and so on. But a lot of times people come to my talks at a food studies conference and they sort of say, gosh, you know, I was going to have lunch after this and now I don't want to so much, really. Um, <laughs> I don't talk about, you know, the things that make people go, hmm. Um, but I do um, almost all the things that I'm most interested in in the food department are things that involve um, fermentation. Uh, so I, I desperately someday want to learn how to brew beer. Um, I have friends who brew beer and I just if you know how to make done. bread and you know how to make oatmeal. If you put those two skills together, you basically know how to make beer. <laughs> yeah, it's, I think it's all the equipment. I don't think it, I, I don't imagine that it would be impossible for me. It's just sort of the dauntingness of, of the startup. Yeah. Um, so I'm interested in, I'm in very, I grew up in the dairy industry. My, my family owned a creamery, which is a place that uh, it, I, I don't think creameries particularly exist anymore, except on sort of homespun ads but it was a place where we made um, butter and um, other obscure products like um, the stuff that you get on popcorn in a movie theater and things like that. Um, so, which by the way, I don't mean to make it sound like it's not butter. It's like butter squared. It's like a much <laughs> higher per fat percentage of fat than butter is. Um, but anyway, so I'm, I'm really interested in fermented dairy products like yogurt and kefir and uh, cheese. I'm interested in, uh, and I'm interested in bread. I'm interested in also in things that feed on other dead things. So I'm really interested in mushrooms. And I, you know, I will, I have a few that I can safely collect, but I also am just fascinated by them and, you know, for all kinds of reasons. So I find that almost all the foods that really intrigue me are foods that have to do with somehow also with these kinds of eating on other things relationships. Um, and chief among those certainly is, is bread, yeast bread. And so I grew up in a family where my grandmother who lived three blocks down the road from me made homemade bread and donuts like every week. Um, there was always homemade white bread. My mother always made homemade bread. Um, and usually in those days, it was white bread made with quite a lot of yeast. So, you know, it rose, rose up nicely and, you know, was kind of fluffy, but delicious and made really great toast. And um, so I always, I was always, I don't remember the very first time I did it, but I'm sure it was, you know, certainly by the time I was in high school, I was able to make bread, you know, alone, you know, probably Aunt Florence's um, recipe for buns that you could turn into cinnamon rolls. Um, but then in graduate school I started you know I think probably my graduate school roommate was the first person I taught to make bread she'd never done it before and I made bread pretty consistently all through graduate school I've I think I've always made bread I love bread but I'm but I don't love all bread like I could you know if all I could get were you know I don't know brownberry ovens bread from the grocery store I would probably never have another piece of bread in my life that you know most bread doesn't interest me but good bread obsesses me um so i made bread for a long 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 time and then somebody gave me a book um i think it was the book bread alone um which is the name of a bakery in upstate new york near where one of my sisters lives and she sent me the cookbook and it was one of the first bread books that introduced americans at least to the idea of really slow rises with really tiny amounts of yeast 
And so, and I was just blown away by that, you know, like a quarter of a teaspoon of yeast instead of a package and, you know, rising for hours and hours and hours. Um, and then baking it at these really high temperatures, not in a pan and using a clay, you know, tile in your oven and all those things to make it crusty on the outside. I was just, I was just blown away. And so then I started doing that pretty earnestly. And periodically I would attempt to make sourdough and I was completely baffled by what I was trying to do, right? Like I did not understand that what you wanted was some of those organisms and then a lot of food for them that what they wanted to do was reproduce. And so I, you know, I was really, I am no chemist, I'll tell you. Um, and so I would think, well, if, you know, if the tablespoon of the starter is good, then a cup ought to be much better, right? And I have a cup, so I'll just put it all in there. And I just produced so much just terrible stuff. And I also realized, you know, I don't even like the taste of sourdough because I thought of sourdough as being always sour. I'm not going to, I'm going to stop trying to do it. Uh, and then, I don't know, it's probably six or eight years ago now, one of my food studies friends and a guy who also was the, uh, he and I were co-editors of the uh, the journal Food Culture and Society together. Ken Albala is his name. And Ken is, you know, Ken's the kind of guy who's like, oh, we went, um, we went backpacking in the uh, California Sierras and we saw a rattlesnake. And so I killed it and skinned it for dinner, you know, like that kind of a guy. Or when he said, you know, he made a brick oven in his backyard, what he meant was he made the bricks, you know, so... <laughs> that's Ken. And so I was, you know, complaining to Ken, like, you know what, I just, I can't make sourdough. And he said, oh, for God's sakes, anybody can make sourdough. Um, I'm going to send you some starter. So he dried some starter, which he named Durga, and sent it out to me in flakes and said, you know, so help me, don't you dare kill this. And I thought, well, okay, I'll try. Um, and I started baking with it. And at first I was baking breads where you used maybe also a little bit of yeast alongside of it. And then and then I got obsessed with, you know, carrying it back, the the um, the sourdough culture and the yogurt culture and the kefir culture and the kombucha culture <laughs> all had to ride back and forth from Minnesota to the coast of Maine with me. And, you know, and we ask ourselves, Ian, why do people find us so quirky and idiosyncratic? <laughs> I don't understand, right? Like, I do realize that that's not ordinary behavior. Anyway, then... Um, Somebody gave me this book, Tartan, the Tartan Bakery Cookbook, and or the, I don't remember what the name of the book is, but it's um, and it's one of those books that I immediately disdain, right? Because it's filled with really spectacularly beautiful pictures, many of them beautiful pictures of beautiful people with their bread, and lots and lots of discussion about the bakery, and it's a very exclusive place, and so on and so on, and not tons and tons of recipes so at least I was at first I was a little bit and then the guy who had given me the book as a thank you present for something um said oh you know have you baked out of that and I said you know what I haven't yet I'm sorry and he said oh yeah well you know it's 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 probably pretty hard <laughs> all right the gauntlet has been thrown down <laughs> you little so-and-so that book isn't too hard for me so i thought well you know start at the beginning and the beginning is their recipe for i don't even remember what they call it something like a basic country bread or something like that and it's uh they walk you in painstaking detail through how they um refresh their starter and keep it alive and it was the other book that um is a really great book for me is oh gosh what's his name um jeffrey hamelman's book um, and I don't remember, it's like something like a bread, a baker's guide or something. Jeffrey Hamelman is the, is the baker, the 
primary baker and baking instructor at um, King King Arthur Flour, and Ooh, he's just I love their really, recipes. Yes, and he's really knowledgeable, and um, and he's his book. I mean, it's definitely a book for both professionals and and home cooks. And I like that book a lot, and I'd been using it a lot. But then along, and so he has a certain way to refresh your starter, and it's kind of half and half, and so on. And then along come the, came this Tartan uh, book, and they are like, well, of course, they always say discard, and we all know they don't really mean discard, but like discard all but one tablespoon of your starter and, you know, basically refresh it with 200 grams of flour and 200 grams of water. So it's like a huge refresh, right? And you think, well, that can't possibly work. And of course, it works so well that the next morning you come down and it's like taking over your kitchen. Um, and so I started baking with that recipe and it's it's very elemental and I will, you know, it, I will use sometimes more whole wheat flour and sometimes more all-purpose flour. And now one of my friends is um, growing and milling an all-purpose whole wheat flour, <laughs> which is kind of fun to use. Well, it's not an all it's not an all-purpose whole wheat flour, but it's a much more weedy flour. There's much more of the bran in it. So you can, pl I, you know, I, I love, and right now during this Corona time, I'm making it at least twice a week, um, a double batch of it, and just leaving it um, unwrapped on people's doorsteps um, and with a little note, you know, like throw it in the oven at 400 degrees if you're nervous at all and it'll be fine. So I've probably made, well, I don't know, more than 100 loaves of bread, I think. Um, and it's, it's this recipe that's just very, very basic, but it produces this just bread that feels like, um, I, 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 I don't know. It feels, it feels like life in a certain essential way. Yeah. I mean, there's a fundamental, I mean, it's atavistic what it is to yeah. make food and then to share it with other people too. Yes. That's one of the reasons that I have this um, part on this podcast is because sharing food even virtually with other people makes some kind of deep connection that I don't know, hasn't, hasn't been, at least I haven't fully explained it. Yes, I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. And I'm finding, you know, so people are asking, you know, what are you doing to kind of keep yourself together and so on. And one of the things that I will admit that I'm doing is I'm obsessively making little sticky. I, I keep tally of, you know, I have a, I have a whiteboard and, you know, it includes like things you do for yourself, things you do for others, things you do for, you know, and I'm obsessively tallying those things every day. Mm -hmm. But the thing that is, you know, when I'm not being an obsessive, you know, guilt ridden, former Lutheran, the thing that I really do that, um, that keeps me together is that I make these loaves of bread and drive around in the car and leave them on people's steps. And um, I know that part of it is because I'm, I'm kind of a baking snob and I get tremendous gratification when people say, oh my God, it's so good. But it is really just, I feel like I'm I'm saying to other people, I hope you're doing okay. I had, um, I, you know, everybody's making sourdough. And so I just posted on my Facebook page, you know, if you're in the St. Peter area and you want to try it, you know, I, my starter is really robust. I'd be happy to share some with you. And I've got like five people now who, who have gotten some and are trying it. And, you know, with, with success, with levels of success all the way from, okay, never going to do that again to, oh my God, it's the first time ever I've gotten sourdough to work. And that's been really fun to watch also, you know, yeah. Just the other people throwing themselves into this thing. And one of my fantasies is to visit the uh, sourdough museum in Belgium. Oh, which, yes. You know, on, on one of on one of your many uh, Christmas time jaunts as a sister <laughs> abroad, you should you should go check it out. 
it's it sounds so amazing that they collect sourdough starters from all over the world some of them hundreds of years old i mean at least if you go by people's stories and how right. i mean how could right. you verify it but that it's just you know this village has been using right. the same starter since time immemorial right and the thing about sourdough is how very very little is known about it and right now there's a there's a lab in um shoot is it north carolina it's a i'm i'm participating in it and now i can't remember which of the universities, is it NC State? Anyway, they're this giant sourdough lab project. And the first thing, the first layer that they did was they invited people from around the country to send them samples of their sourdough. And then they just figured out what was in them. And, you know, one of the things they learned was that there was not a lot of variation in some ways. And in other ways, there was enormous variation. So right now, uh, in mine, I'm happy to say my my starter was one of the 200 that they that they investigated. And it was completely ordinary in every respect. I'm not very romantic about mine. I know, you know, people are like, oh my God, what if I kill it? And I say, well, I'll give you some more then. Um, but um, now they're in stage two where they're inviting people, you know, during the Corona times in their own kitchen to um, start some starters. Um, I think they suggest maybe doing three just with flour and water, flour and water, and use a few different kinds of flour and water, and then just carefully record what's going on over time because they said it's very clear to us that in addition to the organisms it's something about context right so like what's going on in your kitchen in you know minnesota in the in the spring that's different from what's going on in your kitchen in texas in the winter you know oh, that's amazing i'll put i'll put a link into that for people to go look at it that that sounds really really cool it's really interesting and you know and i think about so last night somebody texted me and said you know do you have any starter my daughter my nine-year-old daughter would really like to play around with it and i said oh sure and i thought well you know what i'm just going to feed because you know i i don't have a ton yeah i i just thought well i'll just feed it and it was looking a little kind of you know kind of sad like every once in a while you look at it and you think i just used it this morning but you look kind of peaked uh so i took out a tablespoonful and threw it in a bowl with some of this all-purpose flour I was mentioning. So, you know, Ben, organic grower, he grew up, his father is like the chairman of the Kansas Wheat Board, and now he's doing this little postage stamp size farm um, organic wheat project. When his father comes, they get into very um, vivid arguments, apparently, <laughs> about um, American agriculture. But so anyway, he's growing this great organic flour grain that gets milled locally into flour, and I just, you know, threw it in a bowl and this morning I got up and I thought, well, you know, it's only been probably about, you know, seven or eight hours. It's probably not ready. I'll just have to let them know they should leave it on the counter for a while until it, well, my God. Oh my God. It had overflowed the bowl. It was like, it was just, it couldn't. And it's, it's, it's getting warm here, but it's still not actually warm. And I thought, what went on? Well, clearly there's something going on in that wheat, right? Something going on in that flour. And the two of them together got together and it was holy mackerel just yeah, so, unbelievable so many people are doing sourdough right now there's actually a, a comic on xkcd is a web comic and he oh. posited the idea that uh the coronavirus and sourdough yeasts have a symbiotic relationship <laughs> with a very complicated reproduction cycle <laughs> with us as the medium oh that is hilarious not unlike that cat parasite right exactly that makes rats run toward them right um like a friend of mine just said, you know, what if we used uh, sourdough as a as a way to help people think about uh, flattening the curve that, you know, you can make dough rise slower if you throw sure. it in the refrigerator and retard it, but you're still going to go to the full, you know, the full expansion. 
was like, well, that's kind of interesting. Yeah, I was, uh, you know, when there was a run on the groceries at my, uh, here where I am, I was pleased. I mean, you know, I, I'm not pleased to see a run on the groceries, but I was pleased that all the flowers sold out too, because a lot of people had shared photos of grocery stores where all the flour is still there, but all the bread is gone. Oh my. Uh, which just shows that, you know, people in that neighborhood don't know what to do with a bag of flour. And so, so they bought the bread, but uh, at least down here on the border with Mexico, most people know how to cook. Yes. Um, I was, uh, I just read on somebody's Facebook page last night that they were forced to buy a 50 pound bag of flour on Amazon, which struck me as odd. Like, did you think of going to your bakery? But um, the, the thing that it also made me think of is, so I, I was, I was probably in my 40s when I walked down a, a big uh, a grocery store aisle and I suddenly saw what I was looking at and I realized how the baking aisle had been transformed from the time I was a child, you know, so 1960s Wisconsin, where maybe there weren't, no, I, there were there were many, many, many brands of flour that you could get in a 20 pound bag. And there was pretty much, I'm pretty sure there were 50 pound bags of flour for sale in the grocery store ordinarily. I cannot even buy a 10 pound bag of flour in my grocery store now, not because it's all gone, because they don't stock it anymore. Yeah. Right, well, who, who would need such a thing? <laughs> Gosh, it's so interesting to me. Yeah, so I wanna be sensitive to your time, so uh, I'll let you go, but I, I'll, I, assuming this continues on, I'm gonna have to bring you back because we haven't even talked about your uh, thoughts about food and hospitality as a way of rethinking oh. ethics, or your thoughts about uh, food and epistemology with ourselves as tasters. I mean, a bunch of things that I think about quite a lot. So I'm going to have to harass you again in the future. Well, I'd love to. I mean, and I just want to say thank you so much, Ian, that, you know, I don't, I don't talk as an adult. I mean, I love my students to death, um, but I don't talk as an adult about this work very often. And I, and it feels, I just feel like I've been given this luxurious gift. And, you know, I, there were a million points when I was like, I want to ask Ian something. And then I thought, well, maybe that's not the way the game is played, but. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, but thank you so much. Um, I really, really appreciate it. This was really fun. And what a great idea. That was my interview with Lisa Heldke. We mentioned a lot of things, and I'll try to get links to as many as I can in the show notes, including the recipe for bread she shared with us. If you'd like to subscribe and leave us a review wherever you find your podcasts, I'd appreciate it. It helps people find the show. Follow us on Twitter, at FoodThoughtPod. And if you have a topic you'd like to hear discussed, drop us a line at thoughtaboutfood at gmail.com. Until next time, thanks for listening to Thought About Food. I hope you enjoyed thinking about food with us today. 